Good morning. I'm, I'm Valerie Barrell, as you can probably guess, and I've got a very sort of serious topic for discussion this morning, and I realised I gave this title quite a while ago, and when I looked at the day today and I thought about it, I actually wondered if anyone would want to come on such a beautiful day when there's uh, lots to do outside. So thank you for coming, and I am going to, I'm going to talk about breast cancer, about causes and prevention, what we know now. And I'm going to give a, I'm an epidemiologist um, here in Oxford, and I'm going to give not only an epidemiological perspective and a historical perspective too, about what people have thought really over the decades about breast cancer and what caused it. Because anyway, the bottom line, as you'll see, is that p ideas people had a long time ago have turned out to be true and we've been a bit misled over the last few decades. But I'll, I'll get to that. Now, I'm also going to, for some of you, um, I'm sure you've got different reasons why you're here. And I think if, um, and I'm, I would presume that, that some of you have breast cancer or have relatives with breast cancer and have particular questions. I'm very happy to answer the questions either generally or, or later. But if any of you are here because of nostalgia for epidemiology or for your time at medical school or something here in Oxford, I do want to just start to remind you that, that um, Richard Dole was the Regis Professor of Medicine here from uh, during the 1970s. And he really has, was responsible um, for a lot of the development of just medical research and biomedical research in Oxford. He really, um, in, in that capacity as, as Regis Professor, and I now work in the Richard Dole Building, which is a new building that went up in, in 2005 near the Churchill Hospital. There's now quite a big biomedical centre there. There's a Wellcome Trust. There's, there's a huge sort of cancer biology building here. This is the sort of epidemiology building. There's a genetics building just opposite. Um, now, Richard, now epidemiology, for those of you who don't know what it means, its origin is from the word epidemic, um, or from epi, the, the part, <laughs> the epi part comes from the idea of epidemic, which is really upon the, Epic, epi means upon and demos is the people and it really started, epidemiology as a discipline started with the study of infectious diseases and epidemics um, and a lot of the research over many centuries was, was really concerned with why, you know, why the plague, uh, the epidemics of the plague and so forth and people started analysing statistics to do so and it was really after the Second World War that people started looking at, not entirely, but largely at non-infectious diseases and trying to understand them. And Richard, as I think many of you know, was really the, the one of the really key figures in, in showing by epidemiological methods that, that smoking caused lung cancer. And um, he did this work, and I'm just going to show you, although it's not really related to my, what I'm talking about, but just to show that he did his original work in 1950. He actually died in 2005, and um, he saw over, this is just the, this is in the UK, death rates from, from smoke, from cancer-related, smoking-related cancers from 1950 to 2005, and you can see the huge, that, that actually while, when he did his original research, lung, was largely lung cancer contributing, his rates were going up, but not entirely lung cancer, much lower in women, but rates were going up, but since 19, about 1970, Look at this huge drop 
and in women rates went up and they dropped more recently and and this huge drop is almost entirely due to, to people stopping smoking not not young people not starting but and so it really shows how important it is for people who's, who smoke to give up and to see to think that over his lifetime he saw from what was just a sort of growing epidemic disappear so disease rates are not constant over time you can do things about them and I'll just point because another interesting just sort of historical fact is he did his original research in first research in 1950 and it wasn't until 1970, which is 20 years later, that people really took it seriously and the government started saying people shouldn't smoke. And there's quite a long lag uh, between first really quite serious, quite convincing results and someone taking note of it. And it's, it, it must have been, and I know it was frustrating because at that time he was very attacked by, for his work by obviously tobacco companies, but by other scientists too. It took a long time to accept these results. but. He was lived long enough to actually see this huge benefit. It really is quite phenomenal. Um, now, I'm just going to go back to breast cancer now, which is what I'm going to talk about. And um, I'm going to... And, and, and the reason why I'm talking about breast cancer, well, well for many reasons, but, but breast cancer is now the most common cancer. And this is these pie charts just show the district. It doesn't show how many cases, but... In developed countries, breast cancer the, is the red there, is the most common cancer amongst women in developed countries, and it's, it's 600,000 cases a year, something like that. Now, what's, and, and I think probably everyone in the room would know that, lung cancer is number three um, and is still going up in many places. Now, in, in what you may not know is in less developed regions now, 2002, breast cancer is now the most common cancer in. in in uh, developing countries too, India, many, many, many countries it's now most common cancer in women. It used to be cervix cancer, which now there's a vaccine for, and that's really very promising. So we've got, and I will talk later about how the rates are increasing really very rapidly in, in less developed countries. But so we've got, so breast cancer is now the most common cancer in women, both in developed and developing countries. But the rates are not, these are just proportions of cancers but the question but the but there are far more women in less developed countries than in more developed and if you look at these incidence rates rates per population if you like around the world the red is the highest rates and you can see it's in all the western countries basically the, the developed developed countries and then the colors go the rates go down um orange yellow light green and dark green are the lowest rates and and in this particular figure um, and you can see it's China India uh, many parts of, of Africa the rates are much lower and there's about a six seven fold variation between developed developing countries and what I'm going to talk about today is really why why as an epidemiologist I'm asking why are those differences and talking about why those differences exist I'm not talking about what happens in cells or other, because one can say, well, you know, what, what are the changes in cells that lead to cancer? I'm not talking about that sort of thing. I'm talking about why we've got this, this difference. And, and this is in 2002. And as I've implied, rates are increasing in these green countries and in the orange. Most of the, most everywhere rates are increasing, but particularly in the areas where, where rates have been low in the past. And the way I'm going to talk about this, and it's not too numerical, although we do deal with, with numbers, is I'm going to talk 
about if you take those same World Health Organization figures, these are from World Health, the International Agency for Research on Cancer, which is a branch of World Health Organization. If you, oops. And if you take those figures and you actually look at the probability of developing, of, of having breast cancer by a particular age, and this is up to age 70, it's about 6% in developed countries. Now, you may have heard figures like 10%, because this is often said in the media and so forth, as 10% in developed countries. It is 10% if you go up to about 80, because you can see how breast cancer rates go up with age, which is something a lot of people don't actually appreciate. If you went up to age 80, it would come to about 10%. So it is true that by age 80, about one in um, 10 women would develop breast cancer. But I'm using 70 because the figures are not very reliable in sort of rural parts of Africa and Asia until uh, after age 70. So we've got here, and I'm going to talk about why this gap exists. And I'm going to keep coming back to this graph, showing this gap and seeing how much of this difference can we explain by things we know. So if you just remember, and this is the one figure I want you to remember, it's about six times higher, six, seven times higher in um, developed countries than in um, rural African Asia. So there's, there's that sort of range of, of um, rates. So um, let's go back. I said I'm going to go back through history. Now, if you go back, I mean, you can go back and it's... Um, you can go back to, to paintings um, in, in the Egyptian time, in, in the, um, and you can and people have shown that you can see pictures that um, women were drawn with a sort of puckered breast as if they had breast cancer, right back to to sort of very thousands of years ago. But the first um, description of a kind of cause, if you like, of breast cancer was Ramazzini, who's very famous, um, who wrote really the first treatise on occupational disease, and he mostly talked about lung, lung diseases in miners and so forth, all the sort of ocu classic occupations. It was really the first very thorough discussion of role of occupation disease. But he actually mentioned at the time, in 1743, that breast cancer wasn't, and he called it an occupational disease of nuns. And, um, well, he didn't, it was in Italian, but equivalent of that. And so he, um, but he, and so, and, and it was obviously, in a way, you could say it was something that, that was known about at that time. But again, there were no figures. But not long after that, another Italian called Rigoni Stern, who was the equivalent of the Minister of Health in Verona, had collected statistics on causes of death in women, in, or men and women, in, in Verona over an 80-year period, 1760 to 1839. And what his figures showed was that actually 2.7% of nuns, and quite a large number, died of breast cancer, compared with 0.4% of other women. Now, if you look at that, that's a seven-fold difference. And that's the same level of difference that was in Italy amongst Italian women, whether they were nuns or, or not nuns, um, that existed a few centuries ago. So, because often one thinks, oh, there's so many differences between um, people in India or, a or Africa and, and living in very rural, primitive conditions, us now, it could be infinite numbers of things, genetics, all, all sorts, and I'm going to talk about all of these, but this is in the same population, if you like, nuns and others, there was about the same range of difference. And 
then this is probably a bit too but, but then not much was done about sort of statistical about breast cancer until in the early 20th century when the League of Nations actually had a health organization based in Geneva which was the forerunner of the World Health Organization and in 1925 they set up a subcommittee on cancer and they were particularly interested in breast cancer and cancer of the uterus and they published these figures this is taken from their 1925 report showing and it's a nice little graph it looks a bit like one I showed you before but they showed this is the mortality rates not incidence rates for breast cancer um, by marital status and you can see that single women had higher rates married and widowed were rather similar but single women at every age had higher rates than married women and so this was a little step forward saying well it's not just nuns but even amongst um, non well just in the general population single women had higher rates than married and this fit with this idea that uh, well, well, the idea that it was something to do with childbearing, because that idea was there, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a minute. So, so that was extending the idea a little bit further. And now, I know this session is about women, <laughs> when I was asked to speak, was something to do with women in science in Oxford. So I'm just going to digress a little bit and talk about it, because there was a woman from the UK called Jane, Janet um, Lane Claypon, who was at that meeting and the health organization in 1925 um, but in 1926 she published this report she was in the Ministry of Health and she published a really absolutely beautiful report on breast cancer trying to look at the causes she, she called it then with reference says cancer of the breast a further report she'd done one on survival showing that if people got women got breast cancer how bad the survival was but she published a further report on cancer of the breast with special reference to antecedent conditions, in other words, causes, what came before. And she studied 500 women with breast cancer in London and Glasgow, and she picked controls, women in the same hospitals who didn't have breast cancer, and <coughs> compared, other, compared their characteristics. And what she found um, was that... Um, the average number, even if she, she found that same thing, that there were more single women with breast cancer, but even if she confined her analysis to women who were married, um, the women with breast cancer had fewer children, 3.5 on average compared to five women who didn't have breast cancer. And she also found that women with children um, were less likely to breastfeed. Now I'll return, but I'll just tell you a little story about it because she published a number of absolutely beautiful reports and for the... Ministry of Health, as it was then called, not only for women's health, but also on child health, on the effects of sup food, supplementation, food supplementation, and so forth. And one day, she, her publication stopped, and someone, one of my colleagues, tried to, was sort of interested in what happened to her, and did a lot of research, and it took a long time. Anyway, what was discovered was that she ended up marrying the person who was the sort of chief medical officer or the equivalent who would, had been widowed and she married him. And when, at that time, you married, you could no longer be a civil servant. That's right. That's right. <laughs> so someone like her, who became Lady something or other, I can't remember what, who did absolutely stunning research, really groundbreaking in many ways, when she married, she just disappeared from the face of research anyway and um, 
it's it's hard it's not that long ago that uh that was true so it just anyway it just gives you pause and it's a sort of distraction but something we need to think about how far we've come in actually quite a short time when you look at the time scale even of people thinking about breast cancer so but anyway to just go back to the main point that really starting with Ramazzini and uh, Lane Copon's results really sort of supported that it was really thought really quite that it was obvious almost that the major cause of breast cancer was if women didn't use their breasts for their natural purposes and that was the sort of general view that that was not rigorously tested but prevailing and what I'm going to show in the rest of my talk is that that's actually true and um, that's true and um, we've actually been misled for quite a while and still are there's still a lot of and I'm sure and I, I <laughs> I'm sure many of you in the audience have stories and and that there's and I was, I was speaking to someone before and in the meantime almost for reasons that I'll explain almost every hypothesis about anything has come forward and some people have have championed it one way or the other but the the, the evidence is, and I'll come back to the other, the evidence is that this is largely the true. And then I'm going to talk a bit about what we should be doing about it. But this is, but let's just go back. Now, why do we get misled? We got misled, and this is very technical. We're sort of, for people, historical, for people who work in the field. And even if you are vaguely interested in breast cancer, it's hard to have escaped this idea of this concept of age at first birth. And it's a very funny word, but it's, it means age women were when they had their first child and this is a result if you remember Lane Clapon had a study with 500 women well this was a study in 1970 published in the World Health Organization bulletin still still French then now it's all in English of course um, 5,000 so it's bigger than the other study it was in seven regions of the world and they decided something else they said that it's an international study of breast cancer reproductive experience carried out in seven regions of the world. But they said basically the age woman is when she has her first child is what's relevant to breast cancer, which is true. I'm not saying that's not true. But they go on, and this is where we've gone wrong. They say births after the first, even if they occur at an early age, have no or very little protective effect. Now that's not true, as I'm going to show you. And then they say go on and the main thing that's really caught people's mind, the association with age at first birth requires different kinds of etiological causal hypotheses from those that have been evoked in the past to explain the association between breast cancer risk and reproductive experience and this has really misled people and I'm going to show you why because remember this curve that I showed about rates in um, developed this is the sort of cumulative rate in developed countries six six times higher than rural age in Africa now there's not much difference in the age women are when they have their first child in developed developing countries particularly for women these rates sort of relate to about 1990 or so and you see women who were 70 or 60 in 1990 were born in 1930 or the ones who were 70 were born in 1920 and so when you think back at the re we, you have to remember that these rates by definition see they refer to people from quite a long time ago so in the 19 in the 1930s and 1920s when these women were born or sort of soon after when they had children we didn't have all the fancy contraceptive methods and and there wasn't life was pretty 
primitive, if you like, in rural, very primitive in rural Africa, and Asia pretty primitive to some developed countries too, but nevertheless. Uh, and the average age, but, but, but anyway, the average age that women had their first child was about 25 in developed countries, and it was about 19 in, in rural Africa and Asia. So it was only about six years different. It wasn't that different. Um, you know, things have changed now for these young people. I'm going to talk a bit about what's going on these young ages later. But, but so the, the age wasn't different. And, and we know roughly from a number of studies how much for every year younger, what percentage decline, what, what percent um, breast cancers would be prevented, if you like, for each year younger at, at, at first birth. And it's not that many. So, so one's left here saying, well, what if everyone in developed countries had their first birth at 19 instead of 25? What would the cumulative rates look like? And the answer is not very different. It would drop a bit if, you had, if everyone in developed countries had their first child at 19 instead of 25 at that, that age. So you see, so one's left with this huge gap. That difference still remains. And there have been, since 1970, you name it, I mean, this sounds very rude and I'm sorry, <laughs> but there have been hypothesis after hypothesis after hypothesis. Is it diet? Is it chemicals? Is it genes? Everything you hear on the radio most days is, you know, one, one of these is picked out and someone's found something on something. Now, the reason they're looking is because of this, the reason they were looking was because of this gap. Now, um, this is where I come in, or people and myself and colleagues in Oxford, in that I had done work before I came here um, on the pill, not on breast cancer more, but on the pill. And when I came to Oxford almost 20 years ago now, there was a huge um, argument in the, in the literature and in the media too about whether the pill caused breast cancer, and if any of you... Remember, you don't hear it anymore, and it's because of this group and the work that we did. But this was on, this was, and people really claiming, one group claiming it was, did cause one with the other, and people, even to the point where at scientific meetings, um, people, and it wasn't a meeting I was at, but I've heard stories of it just before I came to Oxford. There was a big meeting where, where the different protagonists would actually pull microphones from each other and shout at each other and almost punch up in sort of the meeting. So it was very emotive amongst scientific and the scientific community, epidemiologists doing the work. So what we did is we, and I was quite neutral, which, which helped set this up, um, but I also had the help of... Richard Dole, so Richard, who was, and um, Richard Dole, Richard Pito that you may have heard of, so Richard Pito does a lot of work now on smoking and lung cancer, Gillian Reeves, statistician, and the four of us set up this collaborative group on hormonal factors in breast cancer. And the idea was to bring together the original data, worldwide data, from all the studies in the world that looked at the pill and breast cancer to try and sort out what was going on. And we did sort out, and, it, it, and I'll tell you, I'll just show, but it's a bit of a distraction to this, but I'll tell you the result anyway. Um, and, um, but once we had information together from 100 studies, and this time sort of 100,000 women with breast cancer and controls, we could really look at other things in some detail before as well. And I'm just going to say the group meet every, every five years. And this picture was taken in 2005. And this was taken actually when Richard was taken... Uh, Richard was 90, it was in April of 2005, and he died in, Ju in July 
after a very short illness, and he was really well and very much participating in the meeting in April, and uh, we all miss him, and he really was a great man. But anyway, so that's... So anyway, what we... So we start off... I'm just going to show there are... For sort of public health reasons, I'm just going to show one slide on the pill and, and hormone replacement therapy, which is what I do a lot of work on, actually, but I don't want to talk... I can answer questions about it later, but this is all I'm saying about the pill and HRT. And what we found... And it might be a bit complicated, but don't worry too much. We basically found if this line here represents never users of the pill, and this line is never users of HRT, this little block here and that little block here are people who are past users who'd stopped the pill or hormone replacement therapy. What we and these these points of have how long they took it. This is less than a year, one to four years, five, this is ten years of use, and this is the same ten years of use. And what we found, surprisingly, both for the pill and HRT, was that when people stopped, there was no increase of risk. Soon after people stopped, both of them, there was an increase. I'll go back. This is in current users. There was. I'll talk. But in, when people stopped, there was no persistent effect. And this goes against a lot of p ideas people had about how cancers are caused. People often think cancers are caused by something that happens... Um, <coughs> happens one day and then you get a cancer 20 years, 30 years later. Well, there's not actually too much... There's evidence of... I, I could have a whole lecture about these hypotheses, but, but there's sort of not that much evidence about whether just a single exposure at this point causes cancer a long time but later. But actually, curiously, for both the pill and HRT, there was no residual effect, which is interesting biologically when I start talking because pregnancies are different, as you may... <coughs> see where I'm heading, because a pregnancy when you're young actually does something... A pregnancy when you're young, having just said there's not that much evidence, for pregnancies there is. We know that a pregnancy at a certain age can prevent breast cancer when you're 70. But taking the pill... And in fact, one of the reasons I was very interested in the pill because I expected the pill to produce a, a long-term protection because of, I thought it was the same as a pregnancy, but it's not. Taking the pill... It's not the same as being pregnant as far as breast cancer goes. So, and that's quite important when I come to the end talking about what are we going to do to, to see there's no, there's no persistent effects of either the pill or HIT. What we did find was that while people were taking the pill, there was a small increase in risk, 20%, which um, didn't seem to relate to how long you're taking it. There was a small increase in risk. HIT, we found there was, increase, there was a risk, but it did go up the longer you've been on HIT. Now, um, this quietened the argument on the pill, and you really don't hear about it a lot. The HRT thing has, has grown a lot, and, and there's a lot of people wanting to doubt this association. But I'm just going to show you what happened um, in the US. I'm just going to show you what... Because it's this residual effect, for our purposes, that's the most interesting. And in the States, because of... And I'm sure you, you have heard that... In the US, there was a randomised trial because there was suspicion about a lot of the claims that were made about its benefit, but, and, and showing really that the benefits claim were not right when you did a randomised trial. And use of HRT dropped considerably since, the, since um, 2001, two when the, when the trial was published. And so the drop in HRT use in the States, and it's happened in... These are just the first ones results to be published, but now it's been published in a dozen or so countries. HRT use dropped and breast cancer rates are dropped. And this is the first time, actually, in the US that ever seen a drop in breast cancer incidence. And this is in um, 
and this followed the drop in HRT use. And what's more, HRT is associated with cancers that have oestrogen receptors on them, with just the oestrogen receptor positive tumours that drop, not the oestrogen receptor negative. So that sort of supports, in a way, the idea that actually hormones, oestrogens and progestogens, which are the hormones in HRT and in the pill, increase the risk of breast cancer. But when, and when you stop, the risks go away. And that's not, again, what people generally think about hormones, but there's really a lot of evidence to say that's the way hormones act. But I'm just going to go back now to um, results from the collaborative group where we really had 100,000 women and we could look very carefully at all sorts of things. But we could look at the number of births a woman, a woman had, how many, how many children in relation to breast cancer risk. This is if, this is no children, it's lying here, this is Sorry, this is one child, I'm sorry, it's not, no, it's one child. And this is two, you can't adjust, this is holding age at first birth constants as a statistical reason. You can't hold it constant, people who've had no children. So, see, one, two, three, four, five, see, it just goes down and down. It was a 9% reduction in risk per child. And what we found too, and I'm not showing here, is it was only births that went on to, to being a birth. It was only pregnancies that went on to a birth. Miscarriages and induced abortions didn't have an effect. So something... Something later in a, in a pregnancy seemed to be protective. Now, it could be breastfeeding, so, and it could be that all of that association was just breastfeeding, but there are enough women in the study to actually just look at women who had children but who never breastfed. So this is to see whether it's, is it, is it the child, childbirth itself. And the answer is yes. It's not as big, it's 7%, but even amongst, this is just lips restricting to women who had never breastfed, still each birth mattered. So that statement before that after the first, the additional births don't matter isn't true, as you can see. And these are confident, these, anyway. And then we could look at also duration of breastfeeding. How long in a lifetime and holding the number of children constant. And again, you could see that for quite, but you've really got to get to quite long lifetime durations, years, before you start getting substantial reductions in risk. It's quite, it takes a while, but, but there's, there's again a clear reduction in risk. And you see a lot of studies had been, particularly in the US, saying that the breastfeeding had no effect. In, in the US the average duration of breastfeeding is about three months, you see. So comparing this line, three months, unfortunately three months doesn't do very much, you see, that against that. So, and so You've got to breastfeed for a long time, but this was true in developed developing countries. This is not just because they're all. This is adjusting for say. This is carefully just comparing women within a single study, within a single country, within a single study, exactly the same age, exactly the same number of children, having their age first age exactly the same. So, so this isn't due to other things. We could, because of such large numbers, we could really hold all that constant. And what's interesting about this and the pregnancies is this persists throughout life. So it's not the same as the pill. It's not the same as the effects of the pill and HRT um, in principle. It's not, it's, not like, um, it's not like just when you, when you take it or when you're pregnant, something happens and then there's no, nothing subsequently. This is a persistent effect throughout life in contrast to the pill. So... Um, when you then plug these things in, in the same way that I did before for um, just saying that when you, if you just take age at first birth, there's no difference. But if you just take account of the larger families, 
that were typical of women in this age contributing to this data set. Um, and the longer duration of pregnancy, of, of breastfeeding, because the average duration of breastfeeding in developing countries in communities that have no contraception not in, in, in rather sort of um, poor rural communities, about two years. So if you, if you say, well, the more with typical larger family size, typical breastfeeding habits, breastfeeding, breast cancer rates would be more than half. It would go from 6.3% to 2.7%. It would almost halve just by, from those statistics, which are worldwide sort of summary really of the, of, of the worldwide evidence, it's really quite a substantial effect. Now we published this in 2002, and I'm just going to think this the next slide, I'm just going to tell you a funny story because this is, I mean, it, it was known, you know, there, there, there are many statistics about developing countries showing that it was typical to breastfeed, the usual was, was to about two, but, I don't, but also if you go back to some of these old paintings of the time, that, you know, you, if you see all these Madonnas and child, the, child, the children are pretty big, and it was usual to see quite big children. You know, this was sort of a typical scene, if you like, and around that time you saw women breastfeeding quite large children who could walk and talk, probably. And, you know, I was rung, and this is, I was rung by a reporter for, about this when, when we published, I just tell you, it's a bit, I won't, I'll try and, who said to me, is it really true that women in developing countries breastfeed for two years? And I said, yes. And she said, yuck. <laughs> and it really illustrated, and there was nothing, it was, you know, there was, she'd been told to write the story, and then no story appeared. And it is very interesting that we've got to the point in society, I'm not suggesting, you'll see, I'm not suggesting this is the way forward, but it is interesting that in much of Western society now, this is thought to be yuck, like it couldn't be true. And um, anyway, a little aside, but there you are. That's how attitudes change. I'm not, you know, but, but it's very hard. The attitudes are now about, because the implications for some of these things are really quite striking. But I, before I go back to all the implications, and I'm not suggesting people have more children or the breastfeed, but these are the reasons which, are, which are people find hard to explain. But it's not the only reasons. I don't want to say it's the only, only explanation. There are other things too. And I'm not going to um, go into them, but a lot of things related to growth also affect breast cancer risk. Um, and just to say that, that the earlier people are at puberty, the younger women, and, and all of these favour higher rates in developed countries than developing. Younger you are when you're at puberty, age at Manichae, the higher the risk, worse in developed than developing, who tend to have later ages of puberty. The earlier the age at menopause, or put it the other way, so the later the age at menopause, the higher the risk. And again, developed countries, women have their menopause later than developing. The taller you are, the higher the risk. Again, this is women in developed countries are taller. Now weight is a bit complicated. It's only obesity in postmenopausal women. In premenopause it doesn't matter, but that's when most of the breast cancers are. So basically weight or obesity are also. So these are all things that, as I say, are sort of related to being big or to be, and they're all, and they're, they're size and they're also nutritionally related. There's another one as well, which is, you can regard as nutritional, but, um, or whatever you like, but there's also, um, 
it's very clear that alcohol, numbers of drinks, of number of drinks um, of alcohol that women have on average also is, a, is associated with risk. This is on average one drink a day, two drinks a day, three drinks, drinks a day, four, four is about a 20% increase in risk. So, so um, again, I have to say that because when we publish this, you get reporters ringing up and saying, oh, you know, three drinks a day, you can't say that's, you know, that's bad. And again, because a lot of the journalists, certainly, and if some of you may well be journalists, you know, they think this is quite normal. And, and so, so I, have to, I have, and I said that to someone, that these findings don't sit well with a sort of contemporary woman. Um, but so anyway, but when we go back, sorry to keep saying it, but it is true. Um, so when you go back, we've already talked about childbearing breastfeeding. When you put in all those what I've called nutritional factors, they're not food. It's not food like um, fats or milk or something. People have looked at all these things. and look, You'll find every, a study that's found almost everything, soya, there are all these claims of different things, but actually it's just being bigger, eating more. Eating more may giving you an earlier puberty, may fatter, taller, all those things do affect risk. And it does bring it down. So it brings it down to 1.8. We're almost where we are with in rural Africa, Asia. And we don't account, there's a thing that these are not measured very reliable. Measurement error tends to us and underestimate risk. So it could just be, it's not like there's a gap. It's, it's probably, that really accounts for almost all the difference. So, and we've known all of these, everything I've talked about, even the menarche and the uh, puberty, we've known these things for a long time. But the important message is that they're probably the main things. Oh, I'm going to talk about genetics. I wonder what time it is. I'm just going to say a few things about genetics because there's been a lot of advances in genetics recently too. And genetic differences do explain within a situation, within a population, there is a range of risks. This, most women, and, and really what... And, what I'm trying to say is this is a sort of distribution of the risk by if, if you knew people's genes, because we do know now a lot. Now these are, this is, so if you took into, if this is the 6.3% developed countries, and we, if we look at what we know now about genetics, which is a lot, we actually, two-thirds of all women would, would range between about 5 and 7 point, and, and, and 7.5, so that, so that most women in let's say in this country, we'll just say for sort of simplicity, even if we could type all the genes and they're now like about half a dozen we know about, we could put most women in this sort of range, but they'd never go down to here. Um, it's this kind of range. Um, so the genes, and so it is true that there is a variation between women because of their genes, but it's about this much on this scale. And interesting because the genetic work has been done in, in Asia and, Africa, and the same genes have the same proportional effect in um, Asia and Africa. It's not that they don't, but because the background rates are so low, it's still two-thirds have a risk, but it's only between 0.8 and 1.2. So the genes act in the same way in all populations. But the thing is, the background rates are lower here and they're higher there. So genes are important, but they're not explaining any of this and anyway when it comes to prevention which I'm talking about you could you know you can't do much about your genes now I'm just going to say 
Again, these are just because commonly asked questions, so I'm just going to answer some of these. What about, because often when I speak, someone says, oh, but why are the rates in Japan so low? And actually someone's already... So it is, it is this thing, people say the rates in Japan are very low. Now, they're low because if we went out to, to 70 up here, we've still got a lot of Japanese women who had traditional, almost developing country type reproductive patterns. But if you go, if you just cut it, if you just ex um, amplify what up to 45, where women now have, modern women if you like, or I don't know if that's the right term, but I'll say it, where the rates are not, instead of 6%, about 1% of women in, in developed countries will have breast cancer by the time they're 45, compared to 0.2% in rural Africa, Asia. But, but look at these, you see, you've got... These obviously include, you know, Africa, China, India, but you see, you've got, right up at this extreme, developed countries... Well, the statistics on Japanese-Americans, Chinese-Americans, African-Americans, and their rates are exactly the same as... Caucasian, so so that in the U.S., people of the same sort of genetic makeup as down here, but living in the U.S., have rates the same as as, as whites, Caucasians. But then you've got all this intermediate. You've got like Japanese in Osaka, Chinese in Shanghai were already up here, even though Chinese in rural China were down here. And you've got Japanese in Tokyo up here, Chinese in Hong Kong and Singapore. So even in countries that were more, in areas that are more westernised, you see, you've got the range right from here to here. And the Osaka Cancer Registry has been going a long time, and you can actually, these figures are for, for about for women who were born in 1945, but you can go from the Osaka Registry, you can look at the cumulative risk to age 45 for different years of birth. And women born in 1930, the cumulative risk was 0.26, so they were down here. For women born in 1955, they're 0.61 up here. So in one area that's collected statistics for a long time, women who were young enough to have changed, and these generations have changed a lot, you can see more than a two-fold increase in risk. So there's, so, and the same is happening, and really very much so in China and in India, where the birth rate has fallen a lot quite recently. You can see in young women rates going up quite fast. So there's no, and that's what I sort of showed you also about even the, the cancer rates associated with smoking falling. There's no, the thing about statistics and national comparisons and things, things change over time. They change quite rapidly and um, you have to always be aware that in certain age groups things may be different and so forth and that's, you know, why it, you know, one can... Anyway, you have to just be aware of that. But So given, given that we've got about... There are about there's just over a million cases in, about 2000, in the year 2000, about a million cases of breast cancer every year. Um, now you can look at the trends and make... It's now the most common set in both developed less developed countries. And you can, it, you can look at the trends and very easily say, and it, you know, I wouldn't want to be sort of quoted seriously, but it's in about 40 years' time, it's going to be 2 million. And much of those 2 million are people from developing countries, actually. So um, breast cancer rates are going to keep going on, and what are we doing about it? And that is outside... It's not outside my area, but it's not something 
unfortunately epidemiologists can easily do. It was okay for smoking because it was easy to say stop smoking. But for breast cancer you can't, it's really, it's really quite complicated. It's really, no, no, the, it's not complicated, but it's, yeah, well, it is, no, it is. Because you need to be rational about it, and this is not so at the moment, because, um, it's, anyway, let me, let me just go on, but it is hard, because we, we know, that, first of all, we know it's the most common cancer in women worldwide. Incidence is increasing rapidly, particularly in developing countries. And, but we actually do know, we really do know the main modifiable causes, potentially modifiable causes. And we do know it counts for most of the worldwide variation in breast cancer. So, but if we want to think about it, it's not like a treatment. This is something, if we really want to prevent it, you have, it's in healthy women. It's in women who haven't got um, breast cancer. It has to be acceptable. It has to be without serious side effects. So lots of people advocating giving women all sorts of hormone-blocking drugs for all their life, but that's not really serious in my view because you can't uh, expect someone to give... I mean, still you could argue 10% of women get breast cancer by the time they're 80, but 90% don't. And to make 90% um, take a drug for life that might cause side effects is, doesn't actually sit very well. And so you have to have something without side effects that's acceptable. Now we do know, and I'm just going back, what, what is easy to do. As I said, for smoking it's easy, you can just say stop smoking. But for women, what do you, now in the UK, they're about, they're about 45,000 cases a year. Now, if no one drank alcohol, no woman drank alcohol, it could be 5,000 fewer. If postmenopause, if no postmenopausal woman was obese, it would be about 4,000 fewer. And it would be 1,000 fewer if no postmenopausal woman used HRT. I would have said five years ago it was 2,000 fewer, but actually use is hard, so now it's only 1,000. So, so all of that together is about 10,000, which is a 25, bit, bit over a quarter. But... They're pretty, and you know, they're, they're pretty hard to achieve these things, except I think the HRT, but anyway, pretty hard to achieve. It's not like this is easy going and it's not going to solve the problem anyway. It's going to reduce, but not solve the problem. But what about the thing that we actually, is staring us in the face, but we sort of, most people don't want to believe, and I'm going to say that because it really is true, that the main course has been known for centuries, it really has, and you know the evidence, the worldwide evidence supports it. But it's really not an option. I mean, we've all become nuns, and that's really quite. It's got its benefit, and you know, and it's not like having no children or fewer ch or children late in life is disadvantageous for many reasons. It's, it's advantageous in life. I mean, it's not like you know, breast cancer isn't the only thing that one thinks about. So it's not, you know, it's, it's, it's not something that's sort of acceptable or likely change or sensible. So it's not, I'm going to say, it's, it, it's an option to ask women to breastfeed, for, suggest they breastfeed for longer, but even, as I said, three months, I'm not saying no, but you've got to start breastfeeding each child for like two years to really, three years, because they have so few children. And probably that's not an option, but it's certainly something people could consider, but it's not an it's really long-term breastfeeding. So what about mimicking the effects of childbearing? And this is, I've only got one or two slides to go, but this is just 
a little picture to show you that during pregnancy all sorts of hormonal changes happen. I'm not going to say what they are, I hope you can't read what it is, just to show that things happen. Now, we know from epidemiology that short-term exposure in early adulthood to one or more of the, and it is the hormones of pregnancy and, and, and lactation, gives you lifelong protection against breast cancer. And we also know, you see, that when I give talks to a, an audience who are um, very much into hormones, they all say, well, we know it's, it's, it's estrogens and progestogens. These, the main, see, the main hormones of pregnancy produced in the body are estrogens and progestogens. And I used to think that that, that was so, and because we knew pregnancies protect against breast cancer. As I said before, I always thought the pill was going to protect against breast cancer in the long term because I thought it was the same as pregnancy. But the point is that there are lots of other hormones in pregnancy, particularly ones that affect the breast, like something called prolactin. And it does make you think. It's very hard to, for me to avoid the idea that really, why aren't we working out which of these hormones and forget that it's because it's not estrogen progesterone. That's, you know, most of the work I've done has been on the pill and HRT. These things increase the risk of breast cancer in the short term and don't have a persistent protective effect. Must be one of these other hormones. Very few people are working on it. But if we could work out which it was, we should surely be able to work out something over a nine-month period, or a bit longer maybe, that's like a hormone vaccine that you give to young women and exposure for a short period would give in theory, lifelong protection against breast cancer, maybe repeated exposures, you know, a couple of times, but it will be something over a relatively short period which should protect in the long term. And, you know, we've got the HPV vaccine, thank heaven, for cervical cancer, and it's almost a kind of equivalent idea, but it's not popular. <laughs> so I'm going to finish there and say thank you for listening, and um, I'm very happy to answer questions. Okay. <laughs>